Hello, Warbirders. All right, so in this B-17 series, you've heard me say over and over that it's a three-parter. Well, it was. But sometimes an idea for an episode comes along, and the time is apropos, and so you got to strike while the metal's hot and get in there and make it right away. So here is a bonus B-17 Part 4 episode for everybody, and let's get to it. Hello, and welcome to World of Warbirds. I'm Brian Pierce. One of the reasons I love working on this podcast is that you never know what surprises that you might turn up during the research phase. And then I love going on to pass those on to you. The second is the connections with people that I've made over the years. People with fathers or grandfathers or uncles who flew or great-aunts or grandmothers who built these marvelous warbirds. People in Europe who write in to let me know about names and dates on tombstones or memorials in their towns. And what always stabs me in the heart is that when you do the math on the markings on the stone and there is only 18, 20, or 21 years difference between the two dates. I've been able to help some family members know what great-grandpa actually did as a navigator or bombardier or whatever during World War II, and that also is very satisfying. The third, and much more rare, element is collaborating with others to make an episode happen. This is always rewarding when kindred spirits with common interests can work together to bring a show to life. This episode is extra special as it involves all three of the above. A listener, Tanner Dawes, reached out to me wondering what a relative did during the war, only providing an image of an obituary. During the course of the back-and-forth communication, the name of the relative was casually googled, and after a few lucky clicks, a pretty astonishing story was revealed. As we were getting close to the release of the Masters of the Air series, Tanner had hoped that perhaps her relative had flown a B-17. Well, not only had he, but he had also flown a famous, or perhaps we should say an infamous, particular fortress, and was a player in a story that involves tangling with JU-88s and ME-210s, a rocket attack, a forced landing, and an unfortunate mix-up with certain Nordic flags. Following more back and forth, Tanner agreed to collaborate in the writing of this narrative, which is fitting, as it is her relative, and the result of all this is the following story. We hope you enjoy it. Boeing B-17, serial number 42-39974, was not actually built by Boeing at all but instead rolled off the production line of the Lockheed Vega Company that had been brought on along with Douglas to aid in the all-out production of fortresses. Our B-17 in question was a B-17G-10 VE Block 42, which had a revised A-21A Sperry Ball turret mounted in the belly and a British-made blind approach radio set. It was delivered to the U.S. AAF on October 23, 1943. 
21 years earlier, Tanner's relative, Ernest L. Reisner, was born on March 11, 1922, in St. Louis, Missouri. When the war broke out, he attended pilot training at Randolph Field in Texas, which was known as the West Point of the Air, and was commissioned as a lieutenant in the USAAF, and at some point in the process was paired with co-pilot 2nd Lieutenant Clyde C. Freeman. The rest of the crew was Navigator 2nd Lieutenant Arthur F. Wagner and Bombardier 2nd Lieutenant Harry H. Dukes. The man in the top turret, who was also the flight engineer, was Technical Sergeant Robert O. Carlson. The radio was operated by Technical Sergeant Charles S. Garrett. And the guns were manned by ball turret gunner Vernus Wilson, waist gunners Bob Hazelton and Herb Rosenberg, with Charles C. Cook back in the tail. They were assigned the previously mentioned B-17, serial number 4239974. As the crew had a 25-mission requirement to complete before they could be sent home, they painted a punch board with 25 squares on the nose of their plane. A punch board was a paper gambling device, very much like today's scratch lottery tickets. But instead of rubbing off a plastic coating, pieces of cardboard would be punched out to reveal the name of the prize beneath. In this case, when all 25 squares had been punched out on the nose of the plane, the prize to the crew would be literally life and liberty itself, with the rewards of going home intact to the USA. We presume that the spaces were painted out and not actually punched out. But the nose art also became the name of the bird and Punchboard and her crew headed for war, departing the USA and heading across the Atlantic. Punchboard landed in Attleboro, Norfolk, in England on January 12, 1944 and was assigned to the 731st Bomb Squadron of the 452nd Bomb Group, which was part of the mighty 8th Air Force. Four months later, on April 9th, Punchboard, Reisner, and his crew were assigned to bomb a Fokowolf factory in Poznan, Poland, as part of a larger operation consisting of 500 U.S. bombers. Weather for the day was predicted to be bad, and it was. Punchboard and 135 other bombers were on their way to Poznan, when the weather became unbearable. A whole combat wing, along with several other smaller groups of bombers, were recalled after passing the Danish coastline. Of the 135 bombers, only 33 would push on through the terrible weather, and Punchboard was one of them. During the run into the target, Punchboard and her crew experienced heavy flak, which damaged 13 of the B-17s. Yet even so, the group was able to perform accurate, precision bombing of the Fokowolf factory. Even though the mission's objectives were now fulfilled, the trip wasn't over. They still had to get home. While on the way back, crossing over the Baltic Sea, the small group of B-17s that were left were attacked by a formation of enemy Ju-88s. The 88s fired a volley of rockets toward the fortresses, one hitting punchboard in her number two engine. With a loss in speed, as she discreetly slid out of the formation, 
the crew realized that they also had a fuel leak. The navigator's calculation showed, at the rate of loss of fuel, the only safe, neutral area that they could reach in time was Sweden. To help improve the chances of making it there safely, the crew lightened the aircraft by throwing their machine guns and ammunition overboard. This action would extend their range, but make them more vulnerable. Reisner set a heading north towards Sweden, flying low over the Baltic. After a long, and what must have been a very scary trip, they saw it. Land. And, later, flagpoles. The flags displayed a Nordic cross marking. Imagine a white cross on a red background. That's Sweden, right? Or is it blue on white? No, it must be Sweden, right? Well, after 10 to 20 minutes more of flying, they found a nice open area that could be used as a field to land. Reisner took the Big Bird in for a low precautionary pass over the field, assessing for any telephone wires, fences, or ditches. Looks good. Looks good. Wait, what's that? The field was indeed too good. It was actually an airfield. Reisner caught sight of an aircraft hidden in some trees. On the tail was a big white swastika. This wasn't Sweden. It was occupied Denmark, and this was a Luftwaffe airfield. They pulled up hard and turned away to run. But then one of the gunners reported an ME-210 heavy fighter right on their tail. Another report said that it might have been a Ju-88. No matter really. It was well armed, and Punchboard's gunners couldn't do anything about it. They had already dumped out all their guns and ammo. About this time, some light AA fire opened up in front of Punchboard as warning shots to land. With no other options, the plane turned again towards the airfield and Reisner lined up to land. And at around 4 p.m. made a superb emergency landing. Maybe even too superb, for although he had brought himself and his crew down from the aerial battle unscathed, he had also landed a fairly intact B-17 on an enemy airfield. Punchboard had a damaged engine and some leaky fuel tanks, but that was pretty much it. The crew was arrested and sent off to POW camps. Reisner was quoted to have said, From this day and after, 13 months in a German POW camp, I can assure you that there were 10 Americans that knew the difference between the Danish and the Swedish flag. Sweden is the blue and yellow one. For Reisner and his crew, their war was over. The same could not be said of Punchboard. Punchboard was joining the Luftwaffe. For a time, the B-17 was stored amongst the other aircraft in the trees. A photo was actually snapped of the lost fortress by a Danish resistance fighter. I'll include the photo with the accompanying images. Later, presumably, after some engine and tank repairs, Punchboard reported for duty with the secretive Luftwaffe unit Kampfgeschwader 200. KG-200 was a bomber unit that ran a variety of special missions, 
while also testing domestic and captured aircraft. Some of the many captured planes that they tested were the de Havilland Mosquito, Bristol Bowfighter, the P-38 Lightning, the I-16, Supermarine Spitfire, the B-24, and yes, the B-17. They had started out by doing recon missions using high-flying Junkers 88s, but also did resupply drops using an assortment of aircraft, including captured Allied machines. They experimented with the MISTL program, which used conjoined aircraft, one being a manned control plane, usually a fighter, and an unmanned bomber drone that was stuffed with explosives. Much like the American Aphrodite and Anvil programs. The main difference was that instead of bailing out, the Luftwaffe pilot in a conjoined fighter would guide the drone bomber to its target and then separate and fly home, while the flying bomb headed towards destruction. Punchboard was believed to be the only B-17G captured intact by Germany in World War II. While its history after capture isn't well documented, we do know that it was used in operations by KG-200. Several sources say it was repainted with a black belly with a grey mottling on top, covering over all the USA markings. Photos taken by Luftwaffe personnel show a B-17 with a very dark belly and one can just barely pick out the mottling on the sides of the plane. The Sperry Ball turret had been removed from the belly. Instead of punchboard on the nose, she now sported a diving white swan that was painted under the left navigator windows. It's not known what actually happened to Punchboard after the last few photos of her were taken. One report is that she crashed on takeoff while carrying French Vichy agents from Stuttgart, Germany to Spain. The other story is that it was shot down by German friendly fire flak, although it's hard to blame them. Even with Luftwaffe markings, a B-17 still looks like an American B-17 and I imagine it would be very hard for a flat gunner to hold their fire. Survivors As I just stated, Punchboard did not survive the war. But the good news is, all her, American, crew did. Although we do not know what happened to the rest of the crew post-war, we do know that Ernest L. Reisner passed away peacefully at the age of 80 in Randolph County, Georgia in 2002. Thank you so much to Tanner for sharing this story with us and for collaborating to make it possible to share with all of you. Thanks again to all who support the podcast through Patreon. I appreciate it more than you know. And you can check out some photos of what we've been talking about on the Patreon page. These are available to all. Until next time.